Uh, good morning, church. Have any of you noticed that traffic seems to have really thickened up over the past couple of weeks? Like anywhere you go in the city or, or the cities around us? Those of you who are joining us online, the city where this church is located, we're in the midst of a multi-year project to dig up every water main in the city. So it feels like every other street is under construction. Our highways are in the middle of large capital projects. Our arterial roads in the midst of transit renovation and restructuring. And what that means is that you just never know. When you turn left onto Cawther Road, is it going to be five minutes or is it going to be 35 minutes? And so I'm in the habit, whenever I have to go anywhere, of uh, of opening up my phone and, and pressing on this little smiley icon, and, and there is the Waze app. It's, it's a mapping app. It's actually quite marvelous. It was developed in Israel, and then uh, I think it was bought by Google. But not only is it a map, it's a map that also tries to predict traffic patterns. And the idea is that that little trip that was going to take 10 minutes, with the help of Waze, it only takes you 40 minutes instead of 45 minutes. And you get some detours and, and you get to see parts of the city that you've never seen. But it's a, it's a mapping app. And it's so much different from the mapping apps that I had when I first learned to drive. I mean, we're, we're really concerned now about uh, when you're driving, not touching your devices, but to do any of you remember unfolding those large paper maps, putting them right on your steering wheel and trying to navigate that way? I'm fascinated by maps. Um, not so much modern maps, but ancient maps. There's a whole science, it's called cartography, that deals with the making of maps. And it's fascinating. You know, we, we tend to think, I think because it, it flatters our ego, that we're just way smarter than people who lived in ancient times. But in fact, ancient and medieval maps are remarkable in their detail, in their complexity. But there's a key difference between their maps and ours. Uh, in the ancient world, people didn't use maps for directions. They used guides for that. Hey, I'm looking for Jerusalem. Oh, you're on the right way. You're on the right trail. It's just past the next hill. But in the ancient world, maps were used by scholars to say something about the world itself and about the history of the world. In other words, they're not so much about geography as they are about capturing a worldview. Have you ever wondered, for example, why so many of our maps have North America and Europe on the top? South America, Africa, and Australia on the bottom. That has nothing to do with geography. The world is a globe. You could look at it anyway. It's just, it so happens that the maps that we have inherited and used were written by, developed by cartographers who lived in North America and in Europe. They're not geography. They're a worldview. If you look at ancient maps, I think one of the most striking feature is that on many of them, in fact, on most of them, at the very center of the map is Jerusalem. And there's an important reason for that, and it's not geography. The, the reason is that there's this belief that Jerusalem, particularly in the center of Jerusalem, in the temple, you are at the very heart of everything. This, this is the center of the world. This is the holiest place on earth. And it was meant to be a sign to, to the whole human race that God who created the world wants it back. It's this reminder that 
that right now, even though sin has messed up a whole lot of things on earth, that every other place on the map has been messed up by sin, that this is still our Father's world, and that He has plans to reoccupy it. And that's good news. God plans to reoccupy Rosedale and, and Regent Park and U of T and, and Heartland. He had a plan to occupy Wall Street long before that was ever a thing. You remember that whole Occupy Wall Street thing? At the temple, at that central point on the map, there is this focal point. And it serves as a sign, as a reminder that God has established a toehold in the world, in a place where God dwells. And, and, and Israel, they marveled at this. They would say things like, and this is from the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, they'd say, the Lord is there in His holy temple. Let all the earth remain silent before Him. One of this generation's prominent New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, he likes to explain it like this. Israel, they didn't so much think of heaven and earth as two completely separate places. They thought of it like two overlapping spheres. And the temple in Jerusalem, that was the place where heaven and earth met. That's why they loved the temple. That's why they revered it. It's why they, they went out of their way to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, three times a year. And they do so with the prayer that what began there would eventually ripple out into all creation. That, that the glory of God would fill the whole world, just as they imagined it filled the temple. And then when Jesus comes, he has this relationship with the temple that turns out to be very, very important. Among other things, it's what got him killed. But the understanding of, of what, what that relationship was, I think it'll change your life. I think it'll change how you view your life. I think it'll change your day-to-day experience in the world. I think what it does is gives you a new map of reality. Today we're going to look at the Song of Simeon. We've been working through this series during Advent called the Songs of Christmas, and there are thousands, tens of thousands of Christmas songs. But we've been focused on four of them that are found in the Gospel of Luke that surround the story of the birth of Jesus. Remember, we started at the beginning of December with the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, the great song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then last week we looked at the, the song of, of Zechariah, powerful, rich song. Zechariah, the, the father of, of John, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, and, and a bold proclamation from that, that, from that message. What we're going to do today is we're going to kind of leapfrog the Christmas story and look back a little bit. And we're going to look at this song of Simeon. Because I kind of thought, wouldn't it be nice on Christmas morning to read the song that just is on our heads and in our ears and on our hearts. That Gloria in Excelsis Deo, the angel song, the one that you sang. I'm glad you got to rehearse it this morning because we'll probably do it again next week. So again, work on your cardio. Gloria in Excelsis Deo, one breath. <laughs> but this morning, the song of Simeon. 
And some of you who have been in maybe other churches throughout your life, you've, you might know this as the nunc dimittis. And if you've never heard that word before, it doesn't really matter. But, but most of these songs are given their title according to the first words or the first line of the song. And because the Bible that people knew for much of history was in Latin, well, that, uh, that phrase, nuc dimittis, is the first phrase in Simeon's song, in Latin. It just means, now dismiss. Now you can dismiss your servant in peace. Job read, or, uh, Joshua read that, that so beautifully for us, that, that song of Simeon. What I thought we could do is maybe just back up the story a few verses. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Luke chapter 2. The verse is just before the section that Brother Joshua read for us. Luke 2, verse 21. This starts in the temple. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, Jesus, he was named. He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And then when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And they came to offer a sacrifice, also in keeping with what's said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or, or two young pigeons. Now let's stop there. Because this may, this may look like just a bunch of strange rituals to us. But really, what they're about is what happens when heaven begins to invade earth. Circumcision was a symbol of that covenant, that rich binding relationship that connected people to God. I will be your God. You will be my people. We're together forever in this. Being given a name. Children were not named the day they were born. They were named on the eighth day before God in the temple as a way of saying, you have an identity before God. They didn't pick names that were just cosmetic, that kind of worked rhythmically with the last name. No, they said, what is it that God wants for our child? And they named them that. In the case of Jesus, there was no doubt because they were told. Before Mary even conceived, you shall have a son and name him Jesus. They have an identity before God. And then there's this language of consecration. To be consecrated to the Lord means that you've been given a purpose. You don't have to worry about whether your life has significance or meaning. Of course it does. You have a relationship, you have an identity, and your life has purpose. And then finally there was this offering. The sacrifice that took place in the temple was always a reminder of the forgiving power of God. Your life is not perfect. And you will make mistakes. But God has already devised a way to find your way back. And it's not an accident, it's not coincidence that for centuries all of this took place at the temple. The temple was the place where heaven was invading earth. And when heaven invades earth, Amazing things start to happen. Sins are forgiven. People are purified. Nobodies, they, they become somebodies. People are given a name. Outcasts, they, they're drawn into this, this new covenant with God. Human life is given divine purpose. They're commissioned. 
And Israel loved all of this. And it's why they loved the temple. But they're also waiting. They're waiting for the day when God's Occupy Earth plan begins to expand beyond the temple, ripples out into the whole world. And so, in the midst of all of this, all these happenings in the temple, Mary and Joseph are there, they're, they're out in the temple courts, they've got Jesus with them, they're doing these things, they're presenting to God, naming, blessing, circumcising, calling forth blessing. And they're approached by an elderly gentleman, a man named Simeon. Luke says in verse 25 that Simeon was righteous and devout. He was committed to God. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. So what's, what's Simeon been doing? I mean, his whole life, not just days or, or weeks, months, decades. What's he been doing in the meantime? He was waiting. Verse 25, he was waiting for the hope of Israel. And as he was waiting, the Holy Spirit was upon him. We don't know much about Simeon. He didn't lead a movement. He didn't spend his life padding a resume. He didn't accomplish a whole bunch of great things recorded in the annals of history. He watched. He waited. He prayed. And he was doing something awesome that maybe even he didn't realize that he was doing. He was keeping hope alive. It's as if Simeon was saying in that time of waiting, I believe that God is doing something wonderful in the world and I want to see it. I think something incredible is about to happen. God is the one behind it and I want to watch. I would love to somehow be a part of it. Remember, it's, it's God's kingdom, not ours. Uh, it's easy to forget. Sometimes I forget. Think about our church. It's my church. It's, it's not. It's God's church. We're not in control. And because we're not in control, that means we spend much of our lives in the waiting business. And the big question is not always, have I got, have I got everything I'm waiting for? Because I never will. Not in this life. Not, on, not in this world. The big question, I think, is what kind of person Am I becoming while I wait? Will I wait with patience and faithfulness? Will I wait on God? I don't know what you're waiting for this Christmas. We're all waiting on something. Maybe you're waiting for someone to love. Relationship, companionship. Maybe you're waiting for clarity about life's direction. Maybe you're, you're waiting for a job, something to bring satisfaction and to provide for your family. Maybe, I know some of you are waiting for a wandering child to find their way home. Or you're waiting for your deep anxiety to settle, to go away. Or maybe you're waiting for the economy to recover, for, for your financial life to bounce back, or or for love to come and heal a marriage that's broken and it's killing you inside. How long will you have to wait? You don't know. I don't know. But maybe what matters is who you become while you're waiting. And will you wait with, with poise and, and patience without becoming bitter and, and self-absorbed? 
Again, we don't know how long old Simeon waited. Months, years, decades. But he never gave up. He refused to give up. He lived to see the moment for which he was created. He just kept waiting until that one day when Mary and Joseph emerged from the temple with a baby in their arms and he asked if he could see. Simeon took Jesus into his arms and he knew. We're not told how he knew. He just, he knew. One of my earliest memories in in church, I grew up in a church not too very far from here, Uh, was one of those Christmas pageants, you know those affairs where where everybody sort of knows their lines, but sort of don't. And, and we love it anyway, because the kids are in costume, and it just it brings the whole story to life. But, but I remember with this pageant, they, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have a, a stuffed animal or a, you know, a doll. They had a real baby in there, standing in for the part of Jesus. And for Simeon, they found the oldest man I had ever seen in my life gaunt and thin and wrinkled and a face with drawn out lines that just sort of spoke to, to a lifetime and, and tremoring hands. And I watched as he picked up a live baby and somehow even as a, as a child I knew this, this doesn't look safe. And he held the baby and then he lifted him up right over his head and he sang the Nunc Dimittis. Now Lord you can let your servant depart in peace. And This is exactly the moment. I want you to hear again the song of Simeon. Luke 2, verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation that you prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You know what that language is about? Not just Israel for the Gentiles. It's heaven come to earth and now it's exploding out from from the boundaries of the temple. Then he hands the baby back to Mary and Joseph and he blesses them. We're told, verse 33, that the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about their son. I bet they did. I mean, don't we all do this as parents? You're holding a child in your arms and your friends come and look, oh, he's beautiful. He looks just like you. That's cool. That means I'm beautiful too. But, but can you imagine what it was like for them to hear Simeon speak those words over their son? God, you can take me home now. My life is complete. I can die happy. I have seen the child. And just a glimpse of what you're doing in the world, it's what I have been waiting my whole life to see. And you can imagine Mary and Joseph just kind of bursting with joy. But it didn't last long. Listen to what Simeon says next. And this is, this is prescient. Verse 34. Your child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel 
And he will be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then it takes a a very bitter turn. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. And that's the last we ever see of Simeon. It's kind of a strange song, isn't it? Here you have this child, the hope of the world. He's, he's everything that Simeon has been waiting his whole life long to see. But he'll be spoken against. People will oppose him. People will resist him. They did then. They still do now. And great pain is coming for Mary. And by the way, you know, most of you know this, but I think it's all pointing towards that day, that, that cataclysmic day when Jesus is lifted up on a cross and while hanging on the cross as part of the barbarism of execution, a Roman soldier takes a sword, plunges it right through the side of Jesus and right there in the front row is Mary. Don't you think she was haunted by those words? And a sword will pierce you also. And it did. As Jesus grows up, there's this deep connection between him and the temple. You know, the only the only snapshot we have of Jesus as a boy. You get the story of his birth and then you get his adult ministry. We have one snapshot of Jesus as a boy. And here it is. His parents, as one of those many trips a year, they, they come to Jerusalem. They would have come with their whole extended family, like a big caravan of people. And they make their way to Jerusalem. No maps, just guides. And, uh, and they're there and they and they're involved in worship and all the things that, that the temple meant to them. And then it's time to go, and they go. And, and I know this sounds like a really bad parenting moment, but remember, they're traveling as a village. And so they're three days away from Jerusalem on their way back home to Nazareth, and they look around and say, where's Jesus? <laughs> and so they, they turn around. They go all the way back to Jerusalem, and they find him right there in the temple. Luke 2, verse 48. Mary says, Son, son, why, why have you treated us like this? You've had those parenting moments, right? You're in a shopping mall and they're there one minute and they're gone the next and your heart is pounding and you don't see them. And It's one of those moments. Son, why have you treated us like this? And Jesus says, Mom, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I'd be here? in my father's house, at the temple, where we're reminded that, that heaven is invading earth and that, that for Jesus, somehow, everything that the temple symbolized was connected to his very reason for being alive in the world. Something else you probably need to know about the temple, at least in Jesus' day, it had fallen into the wrong hands. The temple wasn't just a place of worship, it was also the center of Jerusalem's banking system. And back then, the temple was the place where all the records of debts 
were kept by Rome. And they would use those records to leverage people and claim their land and, and turn them out into the world as peasants. And the Israelites hated that, the same way you hate that the bank knows about your debts. And sometimes rebels, they would seize control of the temple for a little while, and the first thing they would do is burn all the records. <laughs> Ever want to do that? <laughs> I hope they lose my visa bill. <laughs> but to them, it was almost like the dream of the temple had been turned completely upside down. It's not heaven invading earth, it's earth somehow corrupting the dream of what heaven would be like. Against that backdrop, Jesus appears 30 years later, now an adult, and he begins to say extraordinary things about himself and about the temple. Matthew 5, verse 6, I tell you, Jesus says, that one greater than the temple is here. No human being, no rabbi, no teacher had ever said anything close to that. He said stuff like, Matthew 26, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it again completely in three days. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. You've stood in front of the, the one remaining exterior wall of the temple. And if you've seen the size, the enormity of the blocks, the rock that holds the temple wall together, and that sounds like a ludicrous thing to say to demolish and rebuild in three days. It was only after the, the cataclysmic event of the crucifixion, the triumph of the resurrection, that the disciples, they finally understood he wasn't talking about the temples of building. He was talking about himself. Crucified, torn down, resurrected, raised to new life three days later. Staggering. It's almost as if Jesus is using the language of the temple as a metaphor for talking about himself. Everything that the temple was meant to picture in people's lives. Blessing, consecration, identity, purpose, significance, heaven breaking into earth. All of it was coming true in him. He's claiming that, that in him, in Jesus, in his life, his teachings, his community, in his body, in his actions, and finally, finally, it's all happening. Heaven is coming to earth. And you remember what happens when heaven invades earth. Sins are forgiven. Outcasts get drawn into this rich new covenant with God. Nobody's become somebody's. The poor in spirit get blessed. People are given new identities. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Human beings receive a divine mission. And it's grand. And it's global. Mark 16, verse 15. I want you to go into all the world, Jesus says, and preach the gospel to every nation. Bring good news. It's all happening in Him. Heaven is starting to overlap earth. Heaven is invading earth. Anyone who wants to get in on it can get in on it. The prayer that Jesus taught, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's starting to happen. Decades later, the Apostle Paul would say staggering things. 1 Corinthians 3.16 You yourselves, you here together, the, the people who bear the name, the image, the salvation of Jesus, you are God's temple. Now you understand what that's about. 
Paul says, for we are the temple of the living God. God wants to, to begin that, that effort, that, that, that invasion, that reclaiming of earth through you. Thy will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven through you. God wants to, to generate a new map of the world. He's taking it back. He's going to occupy Bay, Bay Street and, and, and Main Street and, and Cawther Road and even Brampton. Like everywhere, everywhere. And you don't need money or degrees or status or connections or clout. In fact, to tell you the truth, sometimes that stuff just gets in the way. What you need is Jesus. Jesus is invading the earth. And when you invite Jesus to make his home in you, when you... When you volunteer to teach some kids and disciple them on Wednesday nights because they matter to Jesus, when you help prepare a Christmas meal or pack a basket for people who feel like the world has cast them aside, when you pray diligently and seriously for someone whose life is in turmoil, when you confess, I've been holding on to this grudge against someone, and you reconcile with them because you believe that's what Jesus wants for you and that's a good life. When you get this idea that then I ought to be generous with your money and, and you decide it's not just going to be an idea, I'm going to act on it. When you decide I'm going to have that hard conversation with somebody because they're stuck in sin and I love them too much to leave them there. When you remember in the middle of the day, the hardest of days, it's a gift just to be alive. When you use your spiritual gifts and God has lavished them on all of us to build up the body of Christ and extend Good news to the nations. You are the temple of the living God. This catches all of us, this news, at different points in our spiritual life, in our journey. For some, it's a wake-up call. For some, it's an encouragement just to to continue on the trajectory of the life that you've lived with Jesus. But maybe for some, this is the first time you've heard it this way. And if that's you this morning, I want to give you this moment. And we want to surround you in this moment. I'm going to ask you all, if you will, just to to close your eyes. And we're going to invite you, Lord Jesus, to be present here in this moment and do your work in our lives. And if, if you're here this morning, and for the first time you've realized exactly how deep and rich and full the experience of God coming to earth, how full that is for you, how life-changing it is for you in the world, if you want to claim it and celebrate it and name it, this is your moment. And you can pray and we'll join you in praying. Jesus, I invite you into my life. Would you take up residence in me in the same way you took up residence in the world? I want my life to be consecrated to you. I want it to have purpose. I want to be bound up in relationship with you in that great covenant that binds us to the Father heart of God. I want to be named. I want the name of Jesus to be over my life like a banner. And I want to be swept up, caught up in the greatest mission the world has ever known. 
to reclaim what is dark and lost, to bring light and hope to bring Jesus. I want Christmas this year to take on every bit of joy and purpose and hope and significance for which you first came. Jesus, I make you my very own. Savior, Master, Lord, and King. I invite you into my life. And if you've spoken those words in prayer, we're going to join you in in a great triumphant shout and say, Yay, God, for this moment. The Bible says that there is much rejoicing in heaven when even one who is lost is found. Thank you, God, for those you have found today. We worship you. we, We love you. We adore you. In the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.